Welcome to another segment of Northwest Passages, the program that features passages from books with a connection to the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host and producer, Douglas Fur, and today we're continuing with Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson, which was first published in 1995. In the passage we'll hear today, we'll learn more about the Japanese-American wife of the man accused of murdering a fellow salmon fisherman in a small Pacific Northwest fishing town in the 1940s. Here's Connie Fur reading from Snow Falling on Cedars. Hatsu found herself walking in the woods later that afternoon. It was getting on toward the end of February, a time of only bleak light. In spring, great shafts of sun would split the canopy of trees, and the litter fall of the forest would come floating down. Twigs, seeds, needles, dust bark, all suspended in the hazy air. But now, in February, the woods felt black and the trees looked sodden and smelled pungently of rot. Hatsu went inland to where the cedars gave way to firs hung with lichen and moss. Everything was familiar and known to her here. The dead and dying cedars full of punky heartwood, the fallen defeated trees as high as a house, the upturned root wads hung with vine maple, the toadstools, the ivy, the salal, the vanilla leaf, the low wet places full of devil's club. These were the woods through which she had wandered on her way home from Mrs. Shigamura's lessons, the woods where she had cultivated the kind of tranquility Mrs. Shigamura had demanded. She'd sat among sword ferns six feet tall or on a shelf above a veil of trilliums and opened her eyes to the place. As far back as she could recall, the content of her days there had always been this silent forest which retained for her its mystery. There were straight rows of trees, colonnades, growing out of the seed bed of trees that had fallen 200 years before and sunk and become the earth itself. The forest floor was a map of fallen trees that had lived half a thousand years before collapsing, a rise here, a dip there, a mound or moldering hillock somewhere. The woods held the bones of trees so old no one living had ever seen them. Hatsu had counted the rings of fallen trees more than 600 years old. She had seen the deer mouse, the creeping vole, the green-hued antlers of the white-tailed deer decaying underneath a cedar. She knew where lady fern grew and phantom orchids and warded giant puffballs. Deep among the trees she lay on a fallen log and gazed far up branchless trunks. A late winter wind blew the tops around, inducing in her a momentary vertigo. She admired a Douglas fir's complicated bark, followed its grooves to the canopy of branches 200 feet above. The world was incomprehensibly intricate, and yet this forest made a simple sense in her heart that she felt nowhere else. She drew up for herself in the silence of her mind a list of the things now cluttering her heart. Her father was gone, arrested by the FBI for keeping dynamite in his shed. There was talk going around that before too long, everyone with a Japanese face on San Pedro would be sent away until the war was done. She had a Hakujin boyfriend she could only see in secret, who in a few short months was sure to be drafted and sent to kill the people of her blood. And now, on top of these insoluble things, her mother had only hours before probed into the pit of her soul and discovered her deep uncertainty. Her mother seemed to know about the gulf that separated how she lived from what she was. And what was she, anyway? She was of this place, and she was not of this place. And though she might desire to be an American, it was clear, as her mother said, 
that she had the face of America's enemy and would always have such a face. She would never feel at home here among the Hackagen, and at the same time she loved the woods and fields of home as dearly as anyone could. She had one foot in her parents' home, and from there it was not far at all to the Japan that they had left behind years before. She could feel how this country far across the ocean pulled on her and lived inside her, despite her wishes to the contrary. It was something she could not deny. And at the same time, her feet were planted on San Pedro Island, and she wanted only her own strawberry farm, the fragrance of the fields and the cedar trees, and to live simply in this place forever. And then there was Ishmael. He was as much a part of her life as the trees, and he smelled of them and of the clam beaches. And yet he left this hole inside of her. He was not Japanese, and they had met at such a young age. Their love had come out of thoughtlessness and impulse. She had fallen into loving him before she knew herself, though it occurred to her now that she might never know herself, that perhaps no one ever does, that such a thing might not be possible. And she thought she understood what she had long sought to understand, that she concealed her love for Ishmael Chambers, not because she was Japanese in her heart, but because she could not in truth profess to the world that what she felt for him was love at all. That was Connie Furr reading from Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson and published by the Vintage Books Division of Random House. I'm your host and producer, Douglas Furr. Thanks for listening today. Northwest Passages is a KSQM Studios production.